0: When I was growing up in Washington, DC, the public school system there made a big part of our curriculum to learn about the founding fathers. We had a school trip to Mount Vernon, of course, and we visited the National Archives so we could view the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. We looked for the parts that we had memorized in class, and as a class we recited loudly by memory the beginning of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And its conclusion, we therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in general Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world, do solemnly publish and declare that these United Colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledged to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Now there was just one thing I didn't get. For you see, I was a boy chorister when I was young and heard a lot of prayers and had sung many anthems and hymns to the praise of God, but in church, God wasn't referred to the way the Declaration of Independence did, that is, as the Creator or Divine Providence or the Supreme Judge of the world. Why wasn't God just called God, I wonder? Or Loving God or Merciful and Almighty God, for that's how God was referred to in church. But people didn't talk about these religious matters then, so it was many years before I found out why. Now the religious traditions of the signers of the Declaration were various. Some were Presbyterians and Congregationalists. They were mostly from New England. There were three Roman Catholics. They were from Maryland. A few were Quakers and Lutherans. Samuel Adams was resolutely Calvinist in his beliefs, and Patrick Henry was an evangelical. He liked to distribute religious pamphlets when he rode circuit as a lawyer. But the religious attitudes of the founders most familiar to us, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and Benjamin Franklin, Well, if you were to ask them what their beliefs were, they would tell you they were deists. Now, deism isn't really a different religion. It's the Judeo-Christian faith understood in a particular way. I've known deists in churches all through my ministry. They'll acknowledge that there is a God, although they might not often pray to this God, And the reason why they don't pray the way we would is that a deist doesn't believe God gets much involved in the ongoing activities of the world, or with you or me in it. God's more like a watchmaker who winds up the world the way you'd wind up a watch and then set it running and gets out of the way. A deist doesn't have what we call a personal relationship with God, doesn't pray in times of difficulty, except in general terms, never abjectly confesses sins, doesn't get lost in the contemplation of the wonder, love, and praise of God. It's hard, after all, to have a personal, loving relationship with a God you think of as creator, or divine providence, or the world's supreme judge. Now I wouldn't want you to dismiss the beliefs of Jefferson or Franklin or George Washington out of hand, for there was one aspect of religion they held in the highest reverence, and that was morals, moral laws, right behavior, character. The closest a deist would come to personalizing God was to refer to God as the supreme lawgiver. For the deist, moral teaching replaces the emotional experience of God. Right behavior replaces love. The experience of suffering becomes resignation in the face of misfortune. It's not my Christian faith, thank God, nor is it yours. God has given us the fullness of the good news. But there's no denying that it fell to the founding fathers, and especially to the ones who were deists, to give voice to the great moral freedoms this country has been founded on. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the freedom to believe as the spirit leads you to, freedom to speak out without fear of being silenced, responsibility to give voice to the weak, and above all, to be a country where being good and doing good are chief virtues, as Benjamin Franklin expressed it to his reverend friend, the president of Yale College. Now there was a time when the preacher could put down the pen at this point and proclaim a hearty Amen. But we can't leave things the way they were sixty years ago. I go to Mount Vernon now and I see the slave quarters rebuilt. And where there was ivy and trailing vines a jungle when I was young, The cemetery for Washington's slaves has now been uncovered, and docents are there to talk about it. Go to Monticello now and you hear as much about Sally Hemings as you do Thomas Jefferson. They've discovered the room where Sally Hemings lived and brought up her children. It has no windows, so far as we can tell. It was discovered where the men's restroom had been. During the past sixty years or so, America's original sin has been exposed. No more Courier and Ives pictures like I had in my fourth grade textbook. Pictures of George Washington contemplating his vast farmlands Slaves in the background seemingly unaffected by the back-breaking labor they endured and the heat of a Potomac River summer, with a male slave approaching Washington, showing an Aunt Jemima smile to present him with a large fruit, perhaps a watermelon. How can we ever know what this country is about when half of the story isn't told? As James Baldwin said somewhere, we are trapped in a history we do not understand, and until we understand it, we cannot be released from it. It's like having a photo of your family and leaving half of them out. They don't disappear simply by cropping them out. Our past will haunt us, diminish us, until we face it, confront it, admit it, make amends, and finally embrace it. I've experienced times when a painful past was confronted, and healing, along with much soul-searching and pain, was the result. And they remind me of the truth of William Faulkner's remark. The past is never dead. It isn't even past. Back in the late 70s, I was living in Vienna, Austria, where I was serving a multi-denominational international congregation. My family and I were the only Episcopalians in it. Well, during the early years of my time there, a TV series from the US called Holocaust, you might remember it, was shown in Germany and Austria on four successive nights. The German-language producers of it were vaguely aware that it would cause a reckoning, which was why at every break they showed phone numbers to call if you needed to talk to a psychologist. The impact of the TV series was greatly underestimated by its producers. By the end of the first night's episode, there was a national uproar. Children angrily asked their elders Where had they been during the war, and what had they done? There were recriminations, angry confrontations, contrite letters to the editor, services of penitence in churches, all that. For you see, before that show had aired, Germans and Austrians pretended that nothing had happened. Nothing needed talking about They thought they could red pencil the 12-year Reich. But the fraud no longer worked. The story was out. There was no hiding. Anger needed expressing. Blame was placed. Much hurt. Much pain was experienced. But instead of continuing to deny the past, the Germans and Austrians confronted it, faced into the enormity of what had happened and of their responsibility for it and for hiding it. And when I returned some years later, school curricula had changed. Conversation and reflection about the Nazi years had become frank and open. Monuments had been erected in the middle of Vienna and in Berlin, too. There'd been a sickness before, a miasma that lurked in the air, but no one was able or willing to give it a name. Now a sense of health and wholeness seemed to pervade my beloved Vienna. The other experience was closer to home, Richmond, Virginia, where I spent a good deal of time when I was young and had a number of relatives there. I remember as a kid being vaguely aware that the African-Americans in the city went about as if they were invisible, except when they were commanded to do something. I never expected the terrible history of Richmond ever to be brought to light. But some 10 years or so ago, while I was doing a conference for Episcopal clergy at a center near Richmond, the staff asked me if I knew about slave trail. I didn't. And they showed me a map where it was. How can I describe the importance of this trail? Imagine a surgeon searching inside you for the source of a sickness no tests could locate or treat. And after opening you up, beneath healthy organs, A dangerously sick area was causing you continued distress, and if left untreated, would kill you. What this trail turned out to be was the way the slaves were taken in the dead of night from their disembarkation from the ship that had carried them over the middle passage to the holding places where they'd be penned until they should be put on the block and sold. I had to walk this trail. I could hardly believe such an acknowledgment of this shameful part of history was possible in Richmond, Virginia. So I drove to the James River, parked, and approached a group of older African-American fishermen who were catching shad. As a kid, I'd done that in walk by the Potomac River and we talked about the ease of catching shad and the difficulty of boning them. I asked them where this trail was, and several of them jumped up, left their fishing rods at the ready, and led me to some boards with signage on them. Very well done. Now look at that, one of them said to me. Isn't that great what the city has done? I never knew where I'd been fishing all my life. You could tell how proud they were that the city had done this, had finally, finally taken a thought for them and shed light on the path their ancestors had taken 200 years before into bondage. They pointed out the fine lights that led the way along the trail and after thanking them and wishing them well, Catching Shad, I set off. It took me along the James River and across a bridge to Shaco Bottom, where the notorious warehouses still stood, as well as the site of the auction blocks, and then to the burial ground, which was just then being uncovered. As I reflect on these things, on this 4th of July, two texts from Scripture sound in my ears like an insistent drumbeat. The first of them we heard seven Sundays ago on Pentecost. Jesus tells his disciples in the upper room, when the Spirit of truth comes, the Spirit will lead you into all the truth. Jesus had told them much of the truth as much of it as they could comprehend at the time. But there was more to the truth to be unfolded. In fact, there is no end to truth. And the Spirit will lead us into it. There's nothing then to fear about knowing the truth, for the truth is blessed by the Spirit and is a gift of the Spirit. And if that's so, then there's nothing gained by trying to hide the truth, distorting it, denying it. For the truth is a holy gift, and as Jesus told his disciples earlier in his ministry, the truth shall set you free. Yes, the truth will be painful, for it is painful to read about the young slave named Amos, whose master had put up printed notices offering a reward for his capture and telling us that he was young, had stars near both eyes, and wore a felt cap. It's painful to visit family in the lowlands of South Carolina and know that within a few miles of their house lie the abandoned rice paddies where the slaves had labored long, planting and harvesting the rice. It is a shock to be walking in the woods of Maine to discover lost under leaves and bushes abandoned for generations the simple rough-hewn grave markers of African Americans who lived there 150 years ago. Such knowledge is not to be avoided, not in the least. And I believe it makes me more more of a human being, and yes, more of an American. For we are only diminished by what we are afraid to face. Isn't that the message of the hymn we'll be closing this service with? Sing a song of the faith that the dark past has taught us. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us. Amen.